Thank you for listening to our church podcast, where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m., for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. We are continuing our study of the Gospel of Luke, and our text this morning is one of the most important teachings that Jesus ever gave. Uh, It's often referred to as the parable of the sower, although it really doesn't have anything to do with the sower. Uh, It has everything to do with the four soils. And this parable is one of the most famous parables that Jesus ever taught, and for good reason. It's found in three Gospels, Mark chapter 4, Matthew 13, and then here in our text, Luke 8. And in Mark's account, Jesus said this about the parable of the soils. He says, Know ye not this parable? How then will ye know all parables? So Jesus placed emphasis on this particular parable and said that if you don't understand this one, uh, you're not going to understand the rest of them. And the reason this parable is so vital for us to understand is that it explains the heart of Christianity. The, The parable of the soils is all about how we respond to the gospel, how we respond to the word of God. And it shows us three examples of unsaving responses and one example of what saving faith looks like. Now, before we jump into our text, I want to talk a little bit about parables because that's uh, kind of a Christianese word that people don't really use outside of church. And so I want to explain it just a bit. Uh, If you're new to Christianity, the word parable, it comes from a Greek word parabole, which is made up of two parts. Para, which means alongside, like parallel. Uh, And then bole means to throw. And so a parable is a story that is thrown alongside a spiritual truth. It's an illustration. It's it's meant to give uh, light to what Jesus is trying to teach. And Jesus used parables quite a bit in the Gospels, uh, particularly in the the Gospel of Luke. And uh, we will see many more parables as we continue studying Luke's Gospel. If you ask most Christians, why did Jesus use parables... I think most of us would say that he used them to uh, clarify a truth, to maybe simplify something, to make it easier to understand by by giving us a story. But that's exactly the opposite of what he says in our text. In Luke 8, verse 10, Jesus says, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to others in parables, that seeing they might not see, and hearing they might not understand. So Jesus says he used parables in order to conceal the truth. He didn't want everyone to understand what he was saying. And so he used parables so that people wouldn't understand. Now, he explained the parables to his disciples. He gave them uh, the keys to unlock what he was saying. But to the religious leaders and those who had resisted him all throughout his ministry, uh, he gave them no explanation. And a parable without an explanation is a riddle. I heard a story recently about a lawyer who was on a plane next to an elderly man, and the lawyer thought that he was really something. He decided he's going to have fun with this old man. And so he, he says to him, let's play a game. I'll ask you a question, and if you don't know the answer, you have to give me $5. And then, if, and then you can ask me a question, and if I don't know the answer, I'll give you $500. Now, the old man was uh, very interested at this point, and so he, he agreed to these terms. And the lawyer asked the first question. He says to the old man, what is the distance between the earth and the sun. The old man didn't say a word. He just reached in his wallet, pulled out a $5 bill, and handed it to him. Then it was the old man's turn to ask a question. So he says to the lawyer, what goes up a hill with three legs and comes down with four legs? The lawyer thought for a minute and couldn't figure it out, so he pulled out his laptop, he searched the internet, he called a few friends, tried to figure out what the answer could be to this. 
Finally, he gave up and gave the old man $500, but he was so frustrated at this puzzling riddle that he had to know the answer. So he, he asked the old man, uh, what's the answer? What, what goes up a hill with three legs and comes down with four legs? The old man didn't say a word. He just reached in his wallet and handed the lawyer another $5. <laughs> a parable without an explanation is a riddle. And Jesus used parables in order to teach a spiritual truth to his disciples, but he did not give the explanation to the religious people. They had no idea what he was trying to say. I notice in verse 10 that Jesus says this parable is about God's kingdom. He says that it's been given to you to know the secrets of God's kingdom. We know that uh, the kingdom of God is not an earthly kingdom with geographic boundaries, but rather it's a spiritual realm. The kingdom of God is the rule of God, and all of us who uh, trust in Christ and who submit to his lordship, uh, we are a part of his kingdom. So it's been given to us to understand the kingdom of God more through this parable. We know this parable is going to be about salvation, how someone can uh, have their sins forgiven, how they can be a part of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And in verse 4, uh, we're going to jump into this, starting in verse 4, where it says, Much people were gathered together and were come to him out of every city. And he spake by a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trodden down, and the fowls of the air devoured it. So this is the setting of the parable. There's a field, and a farmer is walking throughout his field, and he's throwing seed. Uh, the wayside refers to the, the well-worn path that the farmer would have been walking on. Uh, these, these paths through the fields were normally about three feet wide, and it was where people traveling through the area would cut through the field. That seems weird to us because we're big on private property and no trespassing. Uh, but in the ancient world, that wasn't the case. If you were traveling from one place to another, you would cut right through people's property and right through their fields. And so these paths had many people had already walked on them, and it was very hard. Uh, also, this, this type of soil was not cultivated because it, it wasn't meant to be a part of the field. The farmer wasn't trying to grow anything here. And so it was a very hard soil. The seed had no chance of sinking in. It just sits on top of the hardened dirt and gets crushed as people walk on it. And the birds come by and they eat the seeds because they're just sitting there on top of the path. So that's the first soil. Verse 6 says, Some fell upon a rock. And as soon as it was sprung up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. So some seeds fell on hard ground, the footpath, and they sat on top until the birds got it. Other seeds fell on the rock. Now, this is not referring to uh, soil with little pebbles in it or something like that. Rather, it's talking about shallow soil. So there's a thin layer of dirt, and then you have the limestone bedrock underneath. And so the soil, there's enough soil there for the seed to land, to sink in, and to start to grow. But the, the bedrock is so close underneath that the roots don't have a chance to get very deep. Uh, they hit that rock, and they can't strengthen and so it seems for a time like it's going to grow, but then when hot days come and the sun hits the plant with these very shallow roots, the plant is scorched in the heat of the sun because it's not getting enough moisture. Uh, Mark's gospel clarifies this soil in verse 5 of Mark 4. It says, Some fell on stony ground where it had not much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth, but when the sun was up it was scorched because it had no root, it withered away. Uh, so the first soil doesn't sink in at all because uh, the ground is so hard. The second soil begins to grow. It sinks in, but it doesn't last because the soil is too shallow. Uh, verse 7 says, Some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. Uh, maybe a better word in, in our, our vernacular would be weeds. This is weedy soil. Uh, the third soil, it's soft, it's deep. The, the roots are able to grow. 
But the, the seed, uh, I'm sorry, the weeds grow up with the plant. And so eventually they choke the life out of the plant. They, they block the sunlight from hitting it. Uh, they take some of the nutrients and the moisture that the plant needs. And so it looks for a time like the seed fell on good ground. But after a while, it becomes clear that there are weeds in the soil that prevent it from producing fruit. And then verse 8, other seeds fell on good ground and sprang up and bear fruit in hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. So the last soil is good ground. It's not hard like the first ground. It's not shallow like the second ground. It's not infested with weeds like the third ground. Uh, this is good soil. And the seed falls on the ground, the good soil, and it grows and produces a harvest. Jesus concludes the parable by saying, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. And the verb in the, is in the imperative mood in Greek. This is a command. Uh, if you're capable of understanding this, you'd better listen, is what Jesus is saying. After giving this parable, the disciples of Christ don't understand it. And maybe, even as I've read through it, maybe you're getting bits and pieces, but some of it's still a little unclear to you. Luckily, we have the explanation. The, the disciples come to Christ in verse 9, and, and they ask him, what might this parable be? And now we move into the explanation of the parable that Jesus gives, starting in verse 11. Jesus says, the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. So the explanation of the parable begins with the seed. The seed is the word of God. More specifically, uh, Matthew says that the seed is the word of the kingdom of God. This is the gospel. And the soils represent the human heart. This parable is going to show us how different people respond when they hear the message of the gospel. When people are told that Jesus died for them and that he offers them forgiveness and eternal life, if they will repent and trust him, this is how you can expect people to respond to that message. There's four responses. Uh, notice in this text, nothing is said about the sower. That's because it, it really isn't about him. The, the life-giving power is in the seed. It's in the word of God. And it has nothing to do with the technique of the sower. Uh, that's why I preach the way that I do. I study a text. I come up here every week and I read the text and just tell you what it means. Because it doesn't depend on my cleverness. I can't improve upon the seed. First uh, Peter 1.23 says, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. How people respond to the seed of God's word is not dependent upon uh, the cleverness of the sower, but on the condition of the soil. And likewise, how you respond to the word of God depends on your heart condition. And now we're going to see what Jesus says about each one of these soils, which again represents different types of uh, hearts, different types of people, and how they respond when they hear the gospel. Verse 12, Jesus says, Those by the wayside, that's the hard soil, the path, are they that hear... Then cometh the devil, and taketh away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. So the hard soil is a person who hears God's, God's word. He hears the gospel, and Satan takes the seed away. It's, it's clear in this text that these are not true Christians. Uh, Satan takes the seed away from their heart, lest they should believe and be saved. So soil number one is clearly a lost person. This is a hard-hearted person. Uh, they hear the gospel, and the seed never sinks in. It sits on top of the hard soil until the birds devour it. Uh, Matthew, in his account, clarifies this meaning in verse 18. He says, Hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom, that's the gospel, and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which received seed by the wayside. So the hard soil is somebody who hears the message of Christ and doesn't even understand it. Uh, it doesn't ever sink in. And it's obvious that this is a lost person because 
The seeds are taken from the soil before the plant even has a, a chance to grow. The second soil in verse 13 is the shallow soil. This is that thin layer of dirt over the bedrock. It can't grow those deep roots. Verse 13, Jesus explains, uh, They on the rock are they, which when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root, which for a while believe, and in time of temptation fall away. So the shallow soil represents somebody with shallow faith. Uh, they hear the gospel, they understand it, at least superficially, and they receive the word with joy. They believe it for a while, but their faith, when it is tested, does not stand. Uh, Mark's account says it this way in chapter 4. He says, These are they likewise which are sown on stony ground, who when they have heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and have no root in themselves, and so endure but for a time. Afterward, when affliction or persecu persecution ariseth for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. Uh, the second soil seems at first to be a Christian. Uh, the seed lands and it begins to grow. It looks like this person has received the gospel. They received it immediately and joyfully, but they don't last. The, the tragic statement in Luke says that they believe for a while. This is the person who begins following Christ and loves the Bible for a while, but it doesn't last. Times of testing come, suffering and persecution, and they fall away from the faith that they once claimed. Now, this leads to a very important question. Uh, the first soil is obviously somebody who's not a true believer in Christ. They hear the gospel, they don't respond to it. I think that's clear enough. The second soil, what happened here? Was this a, a, a saved person that somehow is now not saved? There's really three options, three ways that you can understand this. Number one, this person was saved and lost his salvation. That's option number one. Option number two, this person was saved and is still saved, even though he's fallen away from the faith. And then option three is this person was never truly saved. Uh, we know the first explanation really is not an option because Scripture makes clear that if a person is genuinely saved, they have eternal life, and that cannot be taken away. John 10, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Once you are placed in the security of Christ in the Father's hand, you cannot be plucked out, even by yourself. The true sheep who follow Christ are given eternal life, and Jesus says, they shall never perish. So there is no possibility that this seed was saved at one point in time and then uh, fell away in persecution and lost his salvation. So that leaves us with two options. Uh, either this is a person who was truly saved and still is, even though they've abandoned their faith, or this is a person who was never truly saved. We're going to look at a few texts that I think will bring clarity on this point, starting with Matthew 24, verse 12, where Jesus says, Because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold, but he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. We are saved if we endure in our faith. In other words, true saving faith is persistent. Saving faith perseveres. It doesn't just last for a little while and then uh, fall away in times of testing. If someone appears to be a Christian but then falls away, the New Testament teaches they were never truly converted. 1 John chapter 2 says this clearly, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that it might be, uh, they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. True faith perseveres. 
If someone claims to have been saved and then leaves the faith, they are giving evidence to the fact that they were not truly saved. Uh, Notice it doesn't say they lost their salvation, but rather they went out because they were not truly converted. If they would have been of us, they would have continued. If they would have been a a true Christian and a true believer in Christ, uh, then they would still be here. Saving faith is persistent. It persists even in times of testing. Uh, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I have preached unto you. And that can be translated, if you hold fast to what I preached to you, the gospel, unless ye have believed in vain. I preached to you the gospel, Paul says. You received it, and you are saved by it if you hold fast to it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which also ye suffer. So Paul says there that these Christians have endured trials, they've gone through tribulations, and they've held fast to the word of God. And so this is evidence, this is a token, an indication that they are truly a part of God's kingdom. Your persistence in faith even through times of testing, is a clear indication you are a part of the kingdom of God. Colossians chapter 1 says, And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unprovable, uh, unreprovable in his sight, if ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. If it seems like I'm hammering this point a little bit, it's because I am. This is very important. Uh, A lot of bad theology is out there in churches today that says you're saved because you prayed a prayer once and you asked Jesus to save you. Even if you live like the devil, if you turn your back on Christ, if you become an atheist someday, uh, you're still a Christian somehow, as though you can be a Christian atheist. Uh, That is completely contrary to Scripture. Paul says here in Colossians, you are saved if you continue in the faith. And don't be moved away from the gospel. The shallow soil looked good for a while. It it sunk in, the seed landed in the the soft soil, and it began to grow. It might have even grown faster than the other soils because it didn't grow down, it just grew up, and so it would spring up faster. It looked like this was a genuine convert. And there's many folks that uh, convert to Christianity seemingly, they, they very joyfully respond to the gospel, but the evidence... The evidence of their conversion, if it's real or not, is if they persevere, even through times of testing. Jesus said this in John eight thirty one. He says, To those Jews which believed on him, if ye continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. You're a Christian for real if you continue, and that'll be the evidence of if your faith is genuine. Now let me clarify one point before we move on. We, we don't keep ourselves saved by our works. In fact, we aren't the reason we persevere in our faith at all. If getting saved was up to you, you would have never repented and trusted Christ. And if keeping your salvation was up to you, you would lose it. If you could lose your salvation, you would. And the only way that any of us perseveres in our faith is because God keeps us. We don't keep ourselves. Listen to how Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, "...who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation." 
ready to be revealed in the last time. We are kept secure by God's power. We don't fall away in times of testing, not because we have such a grip on our faith, but because God has such a grip on us. He keeps us from falling away. Jude says this in verse 24 and 25, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, and it presents you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. He is the one who keeps us from falling. Paul wrote to the Christians at Philippi, he said, I'm confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it, until the day of Jesus Christ. You were were saved by God's grace. He began that work of salvation in you, and I'm confident he will continue it. Uh, It's not our good works that we can credit to our perseverance. It is God who keeps us. He won't let us go. Saving faith is persistent. Not so with the shallow soil. The seed landed on it, and it quickly sprung up. It seemed to have been real, but when testing came, the plant withered because it had no root. And that lack of perseverance demonstrates that they too were not true Christians. So how do you tell a true Christian? How do you tell a true follower of Christ? It's not by the emotion that there may be at the time they confess Christ. There might be joy. Uh, It might seem like they receive it immediately and gladly. There may be signs of life for a while, but a true Christian doesn't fall away. Saving faith is persistent. Verse 14, we move on to the weedy soil. Jesus says that this, uh, they which fell among thorns are they which, when they have heard, go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection. This soil represents a divided heart. The seed falls on the soil and begins to grow, but the thorns or the weeds grow up with it. There's, There's a desire for Jesus. There's a desire to follow Christ, but there's also desires for riches. There's also desires for pleasures in this life. And that divided allegiance chokes the spiritual life out. Mark's account says it this way. These are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts of other things entering in, choke the word and it becometh unfruitful. The third soil is a person who hears the word of God but is distracted by other concerns. They care about riches and pleasures in this life, and so their faith is choked out by their worldliness. They want Jesus, but they also want other things. Their their heart is divided. They want to follow Christ without it costing them anything. And this demonstrates how essential repentance is to true conversion. It's not enough simply to believe that the gospel is true. It it says here in this text that, that this seed heard the word and seemingly believed that it was true. And if that was all there was to being a Christian, it would be no problem to believe in Jesus and live for temporary pleasures. But Jesus makes clear that to follow him means to leave everything else behind. If if you're chasing after pleasures in this life, if you're serving money, you can't add Jesus. He demands to be Lord, and to embrace him as Lord and Master is to give him all of your allegiance. Saving faith is repentance. Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter 9, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever shall save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. Many examples in scripture of weedy soils. People with divided hearts. People that uh, seem to have a desire to follow Christ, but desires for other things enter in and choke out that life. 
One such example we started a few months ago, if you remember, was Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' 12 apostles. He followed Christ for three years. Uh, Certainly there was some sort of interest there, and yet he had a love of money problem. We talked about this uh, several months ago, that his love of money caused him to fall away from following Christ. His desire for riches crowded out his devotion to Christ. He, He wanted money so much that he eventually betrayed the Son of God for 30 pieces of silver. Another clear example of a divided heart is a man who encountered Jesus in Luke chapter 18. says in verse 18, A certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good save one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments, Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor thy father and mother. And he said, All these have I kept from my youth up. Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing. Sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Why is it hard for a rich man to enter God's kingdom? Because to give your life to Christ means giving him everything. He's in control of everything you have and everything you are, and that's a hard decision for someone who has a lot to give up control to a new master. Paul wrote about someone in his ministry with a divided heart, a man named Demas. Uh, He traveled with Paul. He, He helped plant churches. He served alongside Paul for a period of time. But in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says, Demoth hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica. This third soil, then, is a person whose concern for spiritual things is crowded out by their concern for material things. The weedy soil is a lost person who is unwilling to repent. There might be a slight appeal to following Jesus, but they have other things in this life, the pleasures of now, that they care about more. And so they're choked out by those distractions. Saving faith is not only persistent, saving faith is repentant. And lastly, we arrive at the good soil. Uh, Up to this point, you might think the farmer is really wasting his time. He's throwing seed and nothing's growing. But in verse 15, Jesus says that some of the seed lands on good soil. And they that are on the good soil are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. This is the only one out of the four soils that represents a true Christian. These are they which hear the word, and they receive it in sincerity, in an honest and good heart. And notice he says they keep it. Uh, They don't fall away in times of testing, but instead they persevere in their faith. They're also the only soil that brings forth fruit. And it says they they bring forth fruit with patience or endurance. Uh, They keep on growing in their relationship to Christ. Saving faith is not only persistent and repentant, as we've seen, but Jesus is making clear here that saving faith is productive. True Christians will bring forth fruit. If seed lands on good soil, there will be a harvest. Jesus made this clear in John 15, where he says, Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 8 says, But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation. 
Uh, true salvation results in evidence. There should be uh, clear evidence if someone has truly been converted to Christ. Uh, there are many things in the New Testament that are given as fruits of conversion. I'm going to name three in particular. First is conversions. Uh, in other words, a true Christian reproduces itself, and that might be the most uh, evident in this text. This crop, obviously, when it says that this crop brings forth fruit, it means it's bringing forth more of itself. That's how agriculture works. And so one of the fruits of conversion is more converts. Uh, Paul speaks about this in Romans, where he says uh, to the church at Rome that I want to come and uh, give you the gospel so I can have some fruit among you. He says in Philippians, as we saw last week, that by supporting his ministry, there's fruit abounding to your account. And so conversions, people coming to Christ, is one evidence of true salvation. Another fruit of conversion is a change in attitude. Paul listed these as evidences in Galatians chapter 5. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. These are attitudinal fruits. These are changes in your attitude that demonstrate that you are truly a Christian. And then lastly, another kind of fruit that true Christians produce is good works. And I think this is the kind of fruit Jesus is talking about in verse 16 of our text, where he says, No man, when he hath lighted a candle, covereth it with a vessel, or putteth it under a bed, but setteth it on a candlestick, that they which enter in may see the light. If you're good soil, that will be made clear by the transformation of your life. There should be outward evidence. Uh, that fruit should be evident and visible. If, you, if, you, if you're in a dark room and you have a lamp, you can't really hide that light. Uh, nobody tries to, to put something over it. No, that, that light uh, spreads throughout the room. It makes its way out. And if God has lighted your heart with the gospel, your life should be a clear indication of that reality. Jesus used this exact illustration in Matthew chapter 5. He says, Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. And here's uh, the application of what he's saying. Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So the light that he's referring to here is your good works, is your life. It should be manifest to people around you that you are a follower of Christ. Saving faith is productive. All good soil will produce good fruit. I didn't put this in the slides, but in Matthew and Mark's account, it says that the good soil, some of it produces 30-fold, some of it 60-fold, some of it 100-fold. Not everybody bears the same amount of fruit, but all of the good soil does produce fruit. After giving this illustration of the light of your life being visible to everyone, Jesus says in verse 17, For nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest, neither anything hid that shall not be known and come abroad. The truth will come out eventually. Two of these four soils appeared to be good for a while. When the seed fell on the shallow ground, it appeared to be growing. It appeared to be good soil. When the seed fell among weeds, it looked like it would grow and produce fruit until the weeds choked it out. And we likewise can deceive one another. Uh, we can put on a good show and make everybody think that we're a Christian. And it may be here at this church, I don't know, there may be some of the other soils. We may have representatives of each soil in our own church. And you and I can't tell that. I can't look at somebody and determine if they're good soil or if they're shallow soil. And, and likewise, you don't know my heart. You don't know if I'm weedy soil or good soil. But Jesus says it will be made known someday. Every secret will be made clear. Everything hid will be brought out into the light. 
Having explained the four soils, now Jesus gives the application. In verse 18, he says, Take heed, therefore, how ye hear. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken, even that which he seemeth to have. He just said that every secret thing will be made clear. Therefore, take heed how you hear. It will be clear in the future which soil is your, heart, your heart was, how you received the seed of God's word. So take heed how you hear. Don't, don't assume, in other words, that you're the good soil. It's easy for us as we read this text to just automatically plug ourselves into the good soil and not even consider if maybe we are weedy, maybe we are shallow, maybe we are hard-hearted. So examine yourself, he says, because it may be that you're one of the others. And then comes this statement at the end that says, the one who has will be given more, and the one who has not will lose even what he thought he had. To the one who listens to my teaching, Jesus is saying, more understanding will be given. How you respond to what you hear. Remember, this is all about hearing God's word and then responding properly. How you hear my word and how you respond to it determines if you will be given more light. For those who don't respond to the hearing of the word, even that which they think they have will be taken away. The one who possesses true salvation, re repentant, persistent, and productive faith, to him shall be given access to the kingdom of God and further understanding. God gives more understanding of his word to those who listen and obey it. Those who have obeyed what he's already caused them to understand, he'll give more light. But if you don't have true salvation, even what you seem to have will be taken away. In other words, I think he's referring here to the shallow and divided hearts. Your outward veneer of Christianity will be stripped away, and in the light it will be revealed that you were never truly saved. Again, the people represented in the, the shallow and weedy soil, they're not losing their salvation. They were never truly saved. That's, that's why he says... What's taken away is what they thought they had. Uh, that phrasing is meant to draw attention to the fact they actually never had it. Uh, they, they, they assumed that they were true Christians, but they weren't. They never possessed eternal life. And so that is taken away. Verse 19 continues on. It, it says, Then came to him his mother and his brethren, and could not come at him for the press, and it was told him by certain which said, Thy mother and thy brethren stand without desiring to see thee. Uh, by the way, this is a, a problem for the Catholic doctrine that came out of the second century called the, the Perpetual Virginity of Mary, uh, which teaches that she was a virgin her whole life. Well, clearly in this text and many others, uh, she had other children after Jesus. And so he has uh, brothers here that are trying to get to him. They can't approach him because there's so many crowds of people around Christ. And he answers in verse 21 and says, My mother and my brethren are these which hear the word of God and do it. I don't think he's done teaching yet. He's still trying to pound home this point that if you're a true Christian, if you're a true follower of mine, you will live out what you claim to believe. If you've been saved, you'll show evidence of that spiritual life. If you're a good seed, you'll produce good fruit. If you are a light, you can't hide that. If you're in a relationship with Jesus you will hear the word of God and do it. Submission to the word of God is the main point of this text. God's word is authoritative and it demands a posture of submission from us. And that makes perfect sense if we recognize that the Bible is indeed God's word and that the gospel is truly a message from God. If it is God's words, then it carries with it God's authority and to disobey God's words is to disobey God. In other words, submission to scripture is submission to God himself. 
And so the application is, take heed how you hear God's word. Don't kid yourself into thinking that you're God's child if you don't obey him. Those who are his mother and his brethren, those who are in a relationship with Christ, are the ones who hear his words and do it. So how do you respond to God's word? Do you understand it and believe it? Do you obey it? That's what happens when the seed hits good soil. And that's how someone who is in a relationship with Christ responds. Saving faith is repentant, persistent, productive, and obedient. Is that you? Now, what if that isn't you? Uh, Maybe you're sitting here today and you're beginning to wonder, am I maybe a weedy soil? Am I a shallow soil? You've heard the gospel. And maybe like the hard soil, it just never sank in. Maybe like the, the weedy, divided heart, you love the world and the pleasures of this life. So how do you become good soil? I can't give you some sort of three-step process for how to be good soil any more than the soil can make itself good. Because only God can truly cultivate the soil of your heart. If I could somehow make everyone that I give the gospel to respond properly, I would love to be able to do that, but I can't. Uh, It is God who cultivates our hearts. Only God can change a person's heart to have saving faith. Listen to what Ezekiel wrote in chapter 36. He says, A new heart, this is God speaking through the prophet, a new heart also will I give you. And a new spirit will I put within you. I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you shall keep my judgments and do them. Jeremiah wrote something similar in chapter 24. He says, I will give them a new heart to know me, that I am the Lord. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return unto me with their whole heart. Salvation is all of God's grace and none of your achievement. Jesus wrote, uh, said in John 6, verse 65, Therefore said I unto you that no man, shall, uh, no man can come unto me, except it were given him of the Father. The only way any of us become good soil is because God has cultivated and tilled our hearts. Philippians 1.29, Paul wrote, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. It was given to the Philippians to believe on Christ. If your heart condition was good when you heard the gospel so that the seed sank in and it grew and it produced fruit and has even persisted in times of testing, you have God to thank for that and not yourself. We can't brag about what great soils we are. Because none of us would have been good soil unless God had first cultivated our hearts so that we would respond properly to the word. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 2, Despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? Yes, repentance is a requirement for true salvation, but that's not something you conjure up in yourself. The goodness of God leads you to repent. Acts 11 verse 18 uh, says, when they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Repentance is a gift from God. The soil doesn't till itself. God has to do that in our hearts. And because of that, we ought to give God the glory for it. Uh, you can't brag about the fact that you responded obediently to the gospel, because that wasn't you. That was a work of God. Salvation is completely a work of God. Paul wrote again in Ephesians chapter 2, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. God saves you. God changes your heart condition. God grants you faith and repentance. And God keeps you from falling. Even the ability to persevere in your faith, as we've already talked about, it's, it's from the power of God, not your own will. 
the good fruit that the, that the soil produces is also God's work. Philippians chapter 2 says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. If you have a desire to do God's word and you act on that and you obey Christ, according to Paul, it's God working in you. He gives you the, first the will, first the desire to follow him, and he causes you to do of his good pleasure. Colossians chapter 1, verse 29, Whereunto I also labor, this is Paul again, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. How you respond to the word of God is dependent on your heart condition. And the only way you'll have a heart of true faith that responds with obedience to the word of God is if God cultivates that in you. Some plant, some water, but only God can give the increase. So ask God to make your heart fertile soil for his word to fall on. How you receive the gospel and how you respond to the written word of God determines your relationship with God. Only those who respond properly to the gospel and to scripture are genuinely in relationship with Jesus. Again, he says, those who are truly my brethren are the ones who hear my words and do it. So how do you tell if you're a true Christian? How do you tell true saving faith from a false confession? True Christians treasure Jesus above everything else. There's not weeds of other desires choking out devotion to Christ. True Christians continue in their faith. They don't fall away in times of testing. And true Christians produce evidence of spiritual life in their attitudes and actions. How you respond to the word of God determines everything. So ask God to give you a heart of good soil. Ask him to cultivate in you a desire for the word and a willingness to obey it. And I want to uh, make sure I point out here that good soil doesn't always say, stay good. Uh, if, if you have a lawn or you have a garden or something, you can pull out all those weeds for a while, but they eventually come back. It'd be nice if they stayed away forever, but that's not how it works. And so maybe you responded to the gospel, and, and you were that good soil at one point. You responded in faith and repentance. You obeyed the gospel. But then over time, those weeds started to grow. Those other desires started to take uh, root. And maybe you have become hard-hearted over time, like the path. Or you've become shallow, like the ground that was thin above the limestone bedrock. Maybe those times of testing are wearing out your faith. And so I think even as Christians who have responded properly to the gospel, we still ought to pray for further heart cultivation. We ought to want God to give us more of a desire for his word and a willingness to obey it. Again, you can't conjure this up. Uh, this has to be a work of God in your heart. I want to close by giving you just a few example prayers maybe to pray from Psalm chapter 119. I'm going to start with verse 36 where it says, incline my heart unto thy testimonies. In other words, God, incline my heart to your word. Give me a desire for it. You, you can't live in submission to the Bible every day if you're not in the Bible yourself. And don't try to just come here on Sunday, hear the word of God, and then uh, go throughout your week without it, and then come back the next week. You, you can't live your life with the Bible as your guide unless you're saturated in it. So if you don't have a strong desire to read scripture, ask God for it. Ask him to give you a heart that is inclined to his word, that desires his word. Psalm 119, verse 73, Thy hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn thy commandments. So a second thing to pray for is, God, help me understand what I read in your word. Uh, don't let me be the hard soil where the seed doesn't even sink in. Give me understanding. Uh, verse 10, With my whole heart have I sought thee. 
Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Make me to go in the path of thy commandments, for therein do I delight. God, help me obey your word. Verse 133, order my steps in thy word, and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. Uh, God, I want your words to direct my life. I want your word to be a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. I want it to guide me through life. Verse 28, my soul melteth for heaviness. Strengthen thou me according unto thy word. Uh, God, give me strength in times of sorrow. Don't let me be like that shallow soil where the plant dies the first time a test comes. Uh, give me strength. And then verse 37, turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity and quicken thou me in thy way. God, shield me from distractions. Don't let the weeds of this world distract me from loving and serving you with all my heart. Father, I pray that now you would water the seed of your word that you've given to each one of us. Send our roots deeper. Protect us from temptations and distractions around us, all the voices calling us away from the path of obedience to your word. If there's any hard hearts in this room, I pray that you would break them and till that soil so that it would receive your word. If there's any divided hearts, I pray that you would pull those weeds that so often distract us from following you wholeheartedly. And if there are those with shallow faith, we pray that you would deepen our faith and our dependence on you so that we will persevere. We know we can't do this without you. We can't conjure up a right response to your word. Uh, we can't persevere in times of testing apart from your hand and your power keeping us. And so we pray that you would do that in each one of our hearts. And we depend on you to do all of this because only you can. We pray and ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.